Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. Chances are you've never heard of Nate Oman. Nevertheless, Nate Oman is a Mormon worth knowing. Born to Sunstone and Dialogue-style parents, Nate was raised to expect messiness within both the world and his church. After serving a mission in Korea and graduating from BYU, Nate attended Harvard Law School. During law school, Nate became one of the very first Mormon bloggers on the internet and is one of the founders of the juggernaut blog timesandseasons.org. You might even call Nate Oman the godfather of the Mormon bloggernacle, or the network of Mormon-themed blogs on the internet. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Nate is one of those remarkable types of Mormons who knows all, or at least most, of the tough historical and doctrinal issues within Mormonism, and yet he retains a somewhat simple faith in the divinity of the LDS Church. He is also a gentleman. So without any further ado... This is Nate Oman's story, the Mormon blogger knuckle story, and your story, today on Mormon Stories. Well, Nathan Oman, thank you so much for coming on Mormon Stories podcast. I'm happy to be here. This should be fun. Yeah. So, um... I guess our listener, some of our listeners might know about you, but my guess is uh, a good chunk of my listeners aren't a member of the mainstream bloggernacle, so your name will be completely foreign to them. So let's maybe operate under that assumption. Um, uh, but let's let's begin with just a little, little bit about you. Uh, what's your what's your genealogy, so to speak, within Mormondom? Um, well, I, uh, I live in Virginia now. I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, but I grew up in, um, Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and, uh, both of my, uh, parents are LDS. Um, my father, um, is, uh, a longtime employee of the church historical department. Uh, as a curator at the Museum of Church History and Art in Salt Lake City. Um, and my mother is a longtime uh, editor for various uh, Mormon projects. She's an early editor for Sunstone Magazine uh, and did some work for um, signature books. So I grew up with sort of Mormonism um, and to a, to a lesser extent uh, Mormon studies um, sort of around my home, I guess. And I went off to BYU and I served my mission in Korea and then uh, went off to law school. Real quick, what early what early memories do you have of Mormon studies in the home? You know, actually not uh, super vivid ones. Um, the most vivid memories that I have are actually about objects. Um, my father's work um, has, has primarily uh, been as uh, a curator of acquisitions, which means that he's the guy who's in charge of getting the artifacts, the objects, 
that are actually included in the church museum. And so uh, he would be, through his job, would get artifacts, objects, um, and he would oftentimes bring those home before uh, he would take them off to work uh, the next morning. So I remember uh, seeing lots of things that were somehow connected to Mormon, Mormonism or the Mormon past. Um, I have a very vivid memory, for example, as a small child, of petting kangaroo fur uh, because they'd acquired a kangaroo fur that was given uh, to President uh, David O. McKay. Another really uh, oddly, uh, or not oddly, but uh, very vivid memories I have is my father went on um, huge acquisition trips uh, through the Southwest, um, through Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern Utah growing, growing up, visiting Latter-day Saint artists who were uh, Native Americans, mainly Navajos, Hopis, and Pueblos, um, collecting artwork that they had done. Uh, so I have lots of memories of driving out um, into very, very remote places on the Navajo Reservation uh, or remote places on the Hopi Reservation uh, and picking up rugs and pots and things like this. Those are probably my most vivid memories just because they're so tactile. And is your, does your dad have a background in history then? Uh, he, uh, I believe he had a, got a history degree from Brigham Young University, and then he did graduate work in art history at the University of Washington. Okay. So did you ever get to see any of the cool stuff that, that those who are really into Mormon studies would, would love to see? Like, you know, I mean, the seer stones or whatever, did any of those uh, types of I, things, or the, the clock or the watch that John Taylor was wearing, or any um, of that more I, sacred I, stuff? I once I once got to uh, hold and click uh, Joseph Smith's pepper box pistol that he had in the Carthage jail, um, which as a as a kid I thought was really cool. Um, I also uh, once got to um, uh, hold and heft uh, um, Porter Rockwell's revolver, which is this really bizarre um, affair that's like a pre-Colt revolver. Um, so it's very sort of this weird primitive um, revolver. Um, but as a little kid, you know, I was clearly most interested in the firearms rather than the seerstone side of things. Sure, sure. So, so any, any, you know, there's a lot of talk about inoculation, about people learning about the tougher things about church history early on so that when it comes up in, in other settings, it's not a surprise and it's not as much of a shock. So in terms of doctrinally or historically, do you feel like in your formative years there any of that inoculation took place, or was that just not part of the conversation? You know, I don't know. Um, the interesting thing is I don't I don't remember, for example, as a small child or you know as a, when I was in young men's as a teacher or something, having conversations with my parents about you know the atom god theory or polygamy or something like that. Uh, what I do remember though is growing up with this very strong perception. Um, that Mormonism is uh, much broader than um, and sort of much stranger um, than anything that I got in church. So that I, I didn't necessarily grow up, um, I think, um, inoculated from a very, very early age with detailed knowledge about seer stones or something. Um, but I did grow up with this very powerful sense that there was much more to the story than I was getting in church. And that that was just natural, that that wasn't uh, the result of, of some sort of uh, conspiracy of silence or anything like that, but that's just the way the world worked. They just didn't have kangaroo furs in, in church. Um, and so I think then later when I got into things and, um, and started studying uh, in Mormon doctrine and history 
uh, more deeply, which really was, I think, something that happened in my late teens. Um, the, the strangeness of it wasn't surprising to me. It felt very familiar. It sort of was what I expected the world to be like. Um, and I think if I got any inoculation, it was sort of along those lines. But I just expected things to be sort of messy and weird and interesting. So is it? do you remember, was there some uh, pinnacle moment as a teen where you were reading a certain book or magazines or that that you started saying, whoa, now wait a minute, this is really, this is really uh, confusing or this is really hard to take or this is troublesome. Did you ever, did you hit that in those teen years then? No, not really. Um, what's interesting is my, um, my, I think, biggest spiritual struggles were really about um, pretty basic sorts of things. I, I had um, long uh, struggles about the Book of Mormon, uh, for example. This is pre-mission? I, this is pre-mission? Yeah, uh, pre-mission. Okay. Um, but really, those came mostly from reading the Book of Mormon itself. Um, I didn't really get into a lot of secondary literature about the Book of Mormon at that point. I was sort of vaguely aware that it existed. Um, and I dipped into and read a couple of arguments about Book of Mormon problems and various responses that could be made uh, to those problems. But I didn't try to do some sort of comprehensive literature search. Um, I just sort of um, read the Book of Mormon, had this awareness that um, there were substantial arguments that people could make as to why they would reject it. Um, and then uh, my own experience then was, was really quite um, ordinary. I read it, and I prayed about it, and I felt that I received an answer. Um, and that sort of has been enough for me going forward. I still have lots of things that I've got questions about, and I think my, my perception of, of exactly what the Book of Mormon is has shifted over time. Um, but the the way in which I sort of resolved the underlying emotional and spiritual um, uh, issues um, was really very much like the sort of thing that you learn in Sunday school, um, which is not, a, I think, a a, um, a horribly um, encouraging thing for a lot of people who think, I think, that there is some sort of um, secret um, answer out there that you're going to find. I don't think that's the case. I think that you, you study and you learn things and you learn that things are messy um, and then to the extent that one maintains belief, you fall back on uh, faith, hope, personal revelation um, and uh, just awareness that the world's going to be messy and that's the kind of world you live in. Um, and for me that's always been enough. And uh, in all, all this this uh this experience you had about studying about the Book of Mormon and then um, discovering for you its truthfulness, that happened to pre-mission, right? Yes. So how, how was your mission? Did you have any significantly formative experiences there or experiences um, that maybe were additional confirmations to, to your convictions? Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, um, uh, my mission was, the thing that I remember most about my, my mission was being rejected by people. Um, and uh, struggling with the, with the language and communication was the major thing uh, that I struggled with on my mission. Um, I went to Korea, uh, and the language is fairly difficult to learn. And I think that the, the, the thing that helped me about my mission uh, was just the sense of, of um, 
of making a sacrifice and investment uh, in my beliefs. And I think that just the brute fact of making a sacrifice and investment uh, in the beliefs that I had probably did more than anything uh, to solidify my faith in them. We tend to, I think, love those things that we sacrifice for. Sure. Um, and I did find that uh, over the course of my mission, my my um, my attitude towards uh, the gospel and towards Mormonism shifted. Uh, so questions like, is it true, um, became uh, much less important than questions like, what does it mean? And I think that the, the emotions uh, involved uh, with that shifted from uh, issues of sort of angst or anxiety to uh, issues of sort of um, excitement or delight. Uh, it, oftentimes delight in the sort of very strangeness of what was happening. Uh, the whole exercise uh, became uh, fun. I, I, that's not a great word uh, for it, but I think it gets at it. Um, there's a story that's told about the beginning of Greek philosophy and where it began in the world. And the story uh, goes something like this. The earliest Greek philosophy was a man named Thales. And Thales was a very smart businessman, and one day he got a corner on the olive oil, olive oil market. Uh, and made an enormous amount of money. And then the question Thales had at that point is, what do I do with the rest of my life now that I've got all this money? And the answer he gave is, I'm going to do philosophy. I'm going to try and understand the world. And his quest for understanding the world began not with um, anxiety or fear about the world, but just wonder at what it was. Um, and I think that it was really on my mission that I, that I, I, gained this sort of wonder about Mormonism. And I think that's been the sort of dominant intellectual emotion that I've had since then. So when I, when I interviewed Richard Bushman, um, he, he talks about his experience at Harvard where he not only questioned his, his faith of the church, but, but, of, uh, but of God. Um, and at some point he, he was able to recover that. But he seemed to be really careful to say that he didn't, Look, look at his testimony or the church in terms of truthfulness, although I'm sure that if he were asked point blank, he would definitely describe his testimony in terms of truthfulness to some degree. But he wanted to focus on, on the term goodness instead of truthfulness. Is that So to what extent do you relate to that desire to describe things in terms of goodness versus truthfulness? Or is your testimony rock solid planted in you know the one true church you know, we've got the authority, everyone else doesn't. You know, how do you, how do you grapple with that being one of the biggest questions out there? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I actually have, I think, um, pretty ordinary theological beliefs on a lot of questions. Like, I believe that um, there is something uniquely necessary about Mormon priesthood and that it's not available anyplace else in the world. Um, so I, I, there's a sense, right, in which, yeah, I believe that it's all true. Um, but I do relate to Bushman's, uh, in, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, in the sense that the dominant um, emotion or feeling that I have about uh, belief and faith is not necessarily um, the burning certainty that I've got all the questions answered right. Um, there's lots of things I don't know the answers to, and I suspect I'm wrong about um, but rather that there's something uh, 
deeply uh, satisfying and good uh, about um, the life of faith and having uh, a belief in the restored gospel, uh, and that it's it's the delight in that and the delight in, in all of the other sort of um, fun, interesting, um, in, uh, illuminating things that I get in Mormonism uh, that I guess sort of gets me up in the morning religiously. It's hmm. not to say, you know, you don't believe it is true. It's just to say that um, there are other other things that I think are more dominant um, emotional and spiritual experiences for me. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Or if that's even what Bushman is, is getting at. So it's probably a, a, a you you generally can't go all that all that far wrong by saying I agree with Richard Bushman. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, did you when did you realize that you might have a shot at going to Harvard? Was that something you knew in high school, or was that something that just became apparent to you at BYU? Well, I, I went to Harvard for law school, um, and I actually studied uh, political science and philosophy, um, a little bit of economics, uh, but mainly political science and philosophy at BYU. At BYU. Right. Um, and my goal in life was I wanted to be a professor. Uh, and it, it became sort of um, increasingly clear to me at the end of my BYU um, experience that I, I thought I probably wasn't quite cut out to be either a political scientist uh, or, a, or a professional philosopher. And so I was looking around at what else I wanted to do, did and you, I, did, of course, had always... Real quick, as a, as a, as a, as a fellow BYU poli-sci alum, did you have any uh, favorite BYU political science professors? Uh, oh, sure. I had uh, lots of great professors there. I worked for Noel Reynolds. Um, I uh, really liked David Magleby. Uh, I really liked uh, Kelly Patterson and Paul Edwards. Uh, Paul Edwards is not there anymore. He's now provost at Southern Virginia University. Uh, but he was there when I was there. Uh, and and did, did you study, was, was Jay Seawright at, at BYU at the same time you were? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, it's odd. We, it turns out that we knew each other because we were both working for Paul Edwards at the same, at the same time. Okay. Uh, and then we had forgotten that we knew each other, and then uh, came back into contact through the Internet and sort of had this moment of realization in which we said, hey, you're the other guy who worked for Paul Edwards in the late 90s. Oh, fun. Um, yeah. Uh, so I decided I wasn't cut out to be a philosopher or a political scientist, and I was looking out around for other things to do, and I had a chance to work for some law professors. And I thought, hey, they've got a great job. I'd like that job. Uh, so when I applied for law school, I was really applying for law school with the goal of becoming a law professor. And I talked to enough people that I knew in order to do that, really there were half a dozen or so law schools that I needed to go to. Uh, and I just applied to those law schools, uh, about 10 different schools, uh, with the theory that if I didn't get into one of them, if I didn't get into a school from which I could go on to become a law professor, I was going to go find something else to do. Sure. Uh, and I, I got into Harvard um, shortly before I graduated from BYU, and then I actually put off starting uh, for a year uh, while my wife finished graduate school, and I worked in Washington. Where did she do her graduate work? She got a master's degree from George Washington University in speech therapy. Oh, cool. Uh, and she was a graduate student when we got engaged uh, and married, and so we just finished up her program and then packed ourselves off to Cambridge. Okay. And uh, we're probably won't have too much time to talk about your Harvard experience, though I'm, I'm sure I'd love to do that. But was it incredibly intimidating? Was it totally a, a, a peaceful, easy ride? You know, how did you deal with it? How was it? Um. 
it was very intimidating when I initially got there. Um, but I actually found that I was pretty well prepared for the sorts of things uh, that I encountered. Uh, there are a lot of really, really smart people there. Uh, there's actually a lot of uh, really insecure people who are really smart there, which can make for a kind of toxic uh, mix at times. But on the whole, I actually really enjoyed law school. It was an enormous amount of work uh, and was tremendously exhausting, uh, but was very uh, intellectually exciting, and I actually had fun with it, uh, which I think makes me an anomaly among a lot of law students. Right. Um, but I had a good time in law school. Now, tell us about, you know, what what the presence of other LDS folk was like there, and tell us a bit about uh, your uh, dabblings in the Internet and how it grew. Well, there's there's a large group of uh, LDS students at Harvard. Most of them are law students or, or uh, business students. Uh, but then there's also uh, just uh, people who are in other graduate programs uh, at Harvard as well as some undergraduates. But I never really did anything with the undergraduates because I wasn't in the singles ward. Um, I started blogging um, uh, at Harvard actually because I had a friend uh, who was a uh, contributor for what eventually became a really uh, big law blog called The Volokh Conspiracy. Um, and Sasha Volokh, who's on that blog, was a friend of mine in law school. So he introduced me to blogs, and I started blogging. He's not LDS, right? Not LDS? Oh, no, Sasha's not LDS. Okay. Um, he's now a professor at uh, Georgetown Law School. Okay. Um, so Sasha got me interested in blogging. And what and year? What time, year is this about? Sorry, what year? Oh, I can't remember exactly. I'm I'm, I'm thinking it was 2002. Okay. Uh, uh, but I, I may be wrong. It may be 2001 or 2003. But I'm pretty sure it was 2002. Okay. Um, and about the same time, there was a group uh, that was meeting. Um, there were four of us. Uh, there was me. Uh, there was a friend of mine who was studying uh, uh, chemistry or biology. Uh, at Harvard, uh, there was a friend of mine who was in the Divinity School, and then a fourth friend who was studying um, literature. And they were all the S, uh, and we would meet once a week. Uh, and usually we'd uh, meet for lunch, and we would have read something before then. Uh, usually it'd be some sort of an article. Uh, I think we read a book by Paul Tillich one time. And we would just sort of have these discussions about uh, religion and Mormonism and the life of the mind. It was a lot of fun. Um, and we had this sort of half-joking name for ourselves. We called ourselves the Metaphysical Elders. Uh, and Sasha got me interested in blogs, and I thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to continue these uh, lunchtime conversations we would have uh, in a blog format. So we started up a blog called the uh, Metaphysical Elders, and everybody blogged on that blog um, anonymously, um, sort of more as a, as a kind of literary conceit, I think, more than anything else, just playing around. Uh, and that was sort of how I got involved in blogging and uh, Mormon blogging. At the time, there were just a few other blogs that were done by Mormons, but there wasn't a sort of um, self-perceived Mormon blogging community, at least not that I knew of. Okay. And do you have a sense for when Metaph Metaph Metaphysical Elders first went up? What month or year? You know, I... Um, I'm thinking it was it was in the fall of 2002. Okay. Um, but I could be wrong about that. And then I'm thinking it was the fall of 2002. And then how did that how did that grow um, and mature into I guess times and seasons? Uh, well, times and seasons is actually an entirely different project. Um, so Bridget, take us take us from one to the other. Well, well, what happened is when I graduated from Harvard, 
Um, I left law school and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas to uh, work for a federal court of appeals judge there. And uh, after that, I, I stayed in touch with the metaphysical elders. They're some of my very best friends. Um, but obviously, our weekly meetings weren't happening anymore, and the blog sort of fell off. Um, but at the same time, there had been a list that I had started my first year of law school for um, LDS law students, law professors, and lawyers all over the country. And there, there were at one time about 120 people on the discussion list. And there were a group of us on that list that decided, hey, we ought to form a Mormon blog. Um, uh, and so we got together uh, and did so. Initially, it was Matt Evans, Adam Greenwood, uh, Kayemi Wenger, uh, and myself. Um, and Greg Call, um, and we put together times and seasons and started blogging. And for me, it was really uh, more than anything. It was a way of trying to uh, recapture some of the the um, access I'd had to Mormon intellectual discussions in Cambridge. And I couldn't have them uh, in the real world anymore because all of my friends were far away. But through the internet, um, we could carry on the conversation, and that's what we tried to do at times and seasons. And so between Metaphysical Elders and Times and Seasons, just for those who are curious about the history, apparently some individual blogs popped up, and and those blogs, you know, formed, I guess, what now is called the Mormon Archipelago, or sort of the these primary blogs that, that seem to sort of link to each other. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm fuzzy on it myself. Um, I think actually, um, before Times and Seasons, the the only blog that is now sort of still operating was Dave's Mormon Inquiry blog. Okay. Uh, and Dave somehow or another ran across the Metaphysical Elders blog, uh, because initially the audience for that was just us. We didn't really think anyone else was reading it. Um, I think our wives read it sometimes. Um, but it was just sort of our conversation between ourselves. And he ran across that blog and linked to it. Um, and then he uh, sort of immediately uh, picked up on Times and Seasons. Um, and I'm trying to think if there were any other blogs. There was um, Bob and Logan um, were running a blog called The Sons of Mosiah at about the same time. Um, and I'm sure there's other, there were other blogs out there that I'm, I'm not remembering. But those are the two that I remember as being sort of contemporaneous uh, or slightly predating. Days of Mormon Inquiry predated uh, Times and Seasons. So if, if you uh, and then what happened? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. No, please. And then I was just going to say, I think what happened is a lot of people who discovered times and seasons and were participating in the comments decided, uh, hey, we can start our own blog. It's very easy to do, and uh, lots of blogs started sprouting up. If um, if this is possible to do, can you describe some seasons or some phases of of times and seasons from its beginnings to its growth to its position as an 800 pound gorilla in the in the blogger knuckle to whatever you would describe it as today are there are there are there any interesting reflections um you have about its growth and life cycle um you know it's hard i try to sort of resist the um trying to see the blogger knuckle or blogs in general as um uh, sort of this great cosmic disturbance in the force um with times and seasons, it started out uh, with just us. Um, and then what was amazing was how rapidly it began growing um, in the beginning. Um, our, our traffic uh, stats just started going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. Um, 
and we started recruiting people. Uh, and we uh, first we were recruiting people that we knew in the real world. So I knew Jim Faulkner from BYU. Um, I knew uh, Russell Fox, not from the real world, but from uh, the old the LDS philosophy list. Uh, so we started recruiting people, and then uh, we started um, bringing in lots of, of guest posters, some of whom were from the real world, um, and some of whom were just commenters who were saying interesting things, and we thought, hey, we should get that person. And I think the the first time we thought that uh, maybe something larger could be happening was when we contacted Richard Bushman and he agreed to be a guest poster on our blog. Hmm. Um, and we sort of just did it, you know, more um, out of a sense of, you know, it can't hurt. Um, but he agreed to do so. And, um, and I think that that was a sort of, uh, at least for me, was a big turning point where it was like, wow, maybe grown-ups will get involved in this too. Um, and then what I think happened is um, uh, as the, lar- the number of blogs started growing, um, I think Times and Seasons as a center um, for discussion in the blogger knackle faded just because there were lots more uh, or lots of other centers. Uh, what's interesting is that the, the proliferation of other blogs actually didn't uh, decrease the amount of traffic we were getting to Times and Seasons. It increased it. Huh. Um, so that the the competition of other blogs, if you will, was actually very good for times and seasons. I think now um, there's a there's a sense. I mean, I know that I do a lot less blogging than I did before, in part just because my life is is busier. Um, and as a law professor, I get to spend a lot more time doing fun projects rather than uh, boring work projects that I'm looking for excuses to escape from. <laughs> Um, and so my level of blogging has gone down, I think. Um, uh, and I think the traffic level at times and seasons has gone down slightly from what it may have been, say, a year ago. Um, so I guess that would sort of be my sense of the, the life cycle what were the, um, of were, the blog. Were there, any, were there any particularly tough or challenging moments or dynamics um, Running times and seasons during during those um, really strong years, uh, and were there any particular moments of joy or satisfaction or elation that that stick out in your mind? Um, you know, I I I think when we did the blog symposium about Richard Bushman's uh, biography when it came out, um, that was exciting. Um, the first time we ever got quoted in a newspaper, we were quoted by the Salt Lake Tribune. That was exciting. Those uh, stand out to me. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there were other uh, great moments of difficulty. Uh, our, our main moments of difficulty have come. Uh, we've had technical problems, uh, and Kami uh, and is kind enough to solve most of those. Um, I think there was a certain amount of um, what are we? How broad of a of a spectrum of Mormon uh, discussion are we trying to include? in our blog. Um, but I think a lot of that ends up uh, becoming less about sort of ideological positions than just sort of personalities. You end up sort of getting people uh, that you're comfortable with working with. Um, and the and the, the particular voices that they have tend to drive the way things are going. Um, I can't think of sort of great moments of difficulty. Okay. Um, How do you... Um 
if you even do, how do you think about the blogger knuckle now? Do you think it's do you think it's in a great state, a, a sorry state, uh, a neutral state? You know, how do you view it? I think the blogger knuckle is great um, to the extent that it allows people to to get to know people and have conversations they wouldn't otherwise have. I think it's I think it's wonderful. I think there's a limit to the sorts of things that the blogs as a medium can do. Um, I think initially I was probably quite a bit more optimistic about what you can accomplish with blogs than what you can't. What were you thinking uh, at the time? What, what, what? Well, I think I think I had uh, there was this sort of moment right about 2003, 2004, right after Trent Lott was brought down, and all the blogs claimed uh, that he'd been brought down because of. Uh, the the blogs pushing the issue, and there was this moment at which everyone sort of thought uh, the revolution has come, and blogs are going to lead the way. Um, and I think that uh, I thought uh, blogs were going to become major uh, and important players in pushing forward um, Mormon intellectual discussion. And I actually think that that is true, that they are becoming important ways of pushing forward Mormon intellectual discussion but not quite in the way that I had envisioned. Um, I think that they are great popularizers. They're great ways uh, for people to become acquainted with particular kinds of conversations and have particular kinds of conversations. But I think the medium itself makes it difficult to have um, longer, more complex, more uh, fully thought out discussions about things. Because everything happens very, very fast. Um, and a really, really long blog post, uh, you know, is uh, six to ten paragraphs is an enormously long <laughs> blog post. And there's just, you know, there's a limit to what you can do in six to ten paragraphs. Uh, and if you are working in a medium uh, where it requires that sort of all of the thinking be done in six to ten paragraph chunks, uh, there's a limit on the sorts of the sorts of discussions you can have in that medium. And I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's just to understand what blogs do well and what they don't. Um, right. And I think, I think I was a little bit naive initially that I thought, you know, I don't know exactly what I thought, but I, I had these ambitions or these thoughts that um, uh, blogs were really going to become this cockpit for um, uh, major and serious discussions of Mormonism. So, and I, mean, I think that there are, I think there are serious discussions of Mormonism on the blog, but they're not the sorts of things that you can still have in the pages of, say, a peer-reviewed scholarly journal. Um, I think you're always going to need stuff like that to push conversations forward. So maybe you were thinking it would become the new dialogue in Sunstone, you know, for the new generation. Yeah, or or something like that. I knew that it wouldn't ever be quite that uh, because the medium's so much different. Um, um, but I, I think I thought that it could be um, a producer of more, um, I don't know, of sort of more permanent um, uh, discussions. Um, and I just don't think the medium's well-suited for doing that. I think it's well-suited for just people having conversations and for uh, people uh, learning about sources and ideas elsewhere. Um, but ultimately, I don't think that blogs um, can or ever well act as uh, an alternative um, to uh, more traditional ways of doing uh, scholarship and um, sort of serious intellectual heavy lifting. Do you have any favorite um, blogs or bloggers that you like to track that you feel comfortable you know, mentioning as examples of, of what you aspire to as maybe the best on the blogger knuckle? 
Oh, and I'm okay um, if you if you don't want to deal with naming names. I'm just curious if. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's the sort of thing where I'm sure that if I was to say anything, I'd say is going to be offensive. Okay. Um, but with that caveat, let me go on and offend people. Okay. Um, <laughs> I people people that I really like. I like Ronan Head a lot. I think he's a very interesting guy. Um, I have I have uh, liked uh, Dave's Mormon Inquiry blog uh, over the years. I thought it's it's been very very interesting. Um, I think the stuff over uh, at by common consent is very good. Um, uh, there are other people, and I suppose I could just go on and on and on. But at that point, I no, it's good. The exercise just becomes who's included and who's not. Yes, yes, and thank you for for that. It, it, are there any types? You know, is there any extent to which the blogger knuckle could actually be damaging for for LDS folk, and are there any types of blogs or bloggers without naming names that you would say maybe represent uh, a lesser form of goodness? Well, I'm, I, I have no doubt that blogs could be damaging to Latter-day Saints in the same way that any kind of conversation that people have can be damaging to people. Um, it seems to me that if I was to say what, what are particular kinds of things that can be damaging, um, first, I think there's something about the sort of impersonalness of the blogging as a medium that sort of tends to make everybody a little bit meaner. Um, and I think that can be a problem. I think also um, the, there aren't uh, necessarily great quality controls on blogs. And I think that sometimes um, uh, people, um, uh, it just becomes a medium in which uh, people are just venting their frustrations. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with people venting their frustrations. Um, but I think that if, if that becomes your sort of sole or primary diet um, of discussion about Mormonism and the church, uh, I think that can be very damaging. Um, and so I, I'm not uh, a big fan of the monster threads that go on for on and on and on, which is, um, you know, all of the things I hate about X. Right. Um, and in part, I also think they tend to get boring um, because there's, there's a sort of finite number of things that people get bugged about. Um, and once you've talked about the things that people get bugged about, there's oftentimes not a heck of a lot new to be said about those things. Is there a degree to which traffic seems to be generated most by controversy? And if you, if you stray away from the controversy, then you have less traffic and less interest? Yeah, there's probably, I think there's some truth to that. Controversy in sex. Right. Sex always generates traffic, right? Um, uh, and and I certainly know that I've I've posted threads, or I've posted things that I know uh, are going to get uh, people upset, and I've done it as a stunt to see how many comments I can I can get. And I suspect that there are very few people uh, who have blogged who haven't tried to do that. Sure. Um, you know, it's an ego trip. You you post a you 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 write something, you put it out there, and you get all of this response, and it's this sort of instant intellectual gratification, uh, and it can breed bad intellectual habits, right? You want to say controversial or crazy things to see how many comments you can get. Uh, sometimes controversial and crazy things are just said because it's fun and people want to have a good conversation, and I don't think there's any harm in that. Um, but I do think you can you can fall into bad habits. Have you ever received any email or correspondence from people who were really struggling with their faith or with their lives and they let you guys know or you gals know that 
maybe what you did was a real help to them in a time of need? Uh, yeah, we actually got one um, email that I remember in particular. I believe it was actually sent to Jim Faulkner, and then he forwarded it on to the rest of the people on the list. Um, that was from uh, someone who had been investigating the church and had been struggling with various um, um, issues, and they had found times and seasons, and I don't think that we had said anything that resolved her issue, whatever it was. Uh, but just the fact that, hey, there are all of these Mormons who seem to be believing, practicing Latter-day Saints who are having all of these discussions and struggling with the same sorts of issues that she was struggling with made her think, hey, it's all right to struggle with these things. And she uh, chose to be baptized and said that Times and Seasons was an important part of that. Uh. And I think that's probably the coolest thing that I've ever heard um, about the blog. Uh, I also, though, um, have read comments from people who have talked about how, you know, times and seasons exposed them to things they hadn't previously thought of before and that that had been a faith-shaking experience for them. Did you ever feel bad or guilty about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel bad. I would feel bad if I had, if I had, exp if I had um, talked about something or exposed someone to something in such a way um, that it was... Um, uh, a damaging or negative experience for them. Um, although, I mean, at the end of the day, there are certain things that are what they are. Um, and uh, I think we, we oftentimes uh, do better um, if on uh, difficult topics that faithful Latter-day Saints um, or those who describe themselves as faithful Latter-day Saints are willing to just sort of forthrightly engage things um, uh, and, and let the conversation uh, go. Um, but yeah, I would feel guilty if I had if I had done it in such a way that it was damaging to someone or I'd done it irresponsibly in some way. So uh, let's let's talk about that just a bit, if you don't mind. I appreciate everything you've said so far. I really do. Um, you know, it won't be news to you, and this is something that's been probably discussed ad nauseum uh, on the blogger knuckle. But I'd like to have your thoughts on it. The, you know, the church has gone through some interesting stages. It, it went through its early years where it was heavily persecuted. It went through a lot of years in Salt Lake where history, the, the archives were sort of under lock and key. Then there was the whole Camelot years of, of history in the 70s with Leonard Arrington and Dialogue and Sunstone. And then it seems, there seems to have been this retrenchment where, for in some people's view, the archives were sort of more limited again. They shut down the history department and, and um, you know, some scholars were punished. Um, but, you know, in spite of all that, the books have come out. You know, uh, Michael Quinn's books have come out, Bushman's books come out, Palmer's books come out, all the other books, all the anti-Mormonism on the Internet. Um, and it leaves people in interesting, precarious positions. There there are folks like you and and I guess my correspondence with uh, F John Fowles and others who, who sort of knew all along when they were growing up that there were tough things in the church history. And so nothing that they hear ever sh rattles or shakes them and... And, you know, you could say polyandry, you could say peep stones, you could say post-manifesto polygamy. And that's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, you know, what, you, you got something better than that. So th there's people like that. But then there's a whole other group of people who maybe grew up with a really orthodox, super conservative viewpoint, a really literalist, idealistic view of a testimony, who are now being confronted with stuff they find in Google, this stuff on the Internet, stuff they find in blogs. Um, and, I, and I imagine that the church is, is uh, spending at least a little bit of time and thought uh, trying to figure out how they're going to deal with all this. 
What are your thoughts on um, LDS history, culture, the internet, this new awareness that's coming out that blogs sort of help uh, promote? How how the church might consider thinking about dealing with it if you, let's just, in a fictitious way, you were in the driver's seat or whatever. Um, you know, how do you see the state of Mormon studies of these controversial issues and them resolving themselves out over time? Like some ex-Mormons like to, like to view that the church is going to crash and collapse because of all the stuff that's going to come out. Others say that's all just worry that we're going to be fine, that, it, you know, we've, we've been through much tougher in the past. Do you see these as serious issues? It's just a blip on the radar. Talk about any, any of this that you feel comfortable talking about. Is, is that all? <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, I, I don't know how the church ought to be run. And I'm not going to tell the world on try and tell the church how it ought to be run. Uh, blessedly, that is not my responsibility. <laughs> Um, I mean, my, for what it's worth, my own sense uh, is that in terms of the Church's attitude towards intellectual discussions, it's much better now than it's been uh, for many years in the past. Um, I think they're still sort of cautious about things um, institutionally, um, but I actually think that the, the intellectual climate within Mormonism uh, is actually quite good and it's getting better. Um, in terms of... Uh, how things, how the world is going to deal with all of this stuff. I mean, my sense is that what happens is that the the internet uh, opens up uh, access to a lot of information uh, that was probably more difficult for people uh, to get in the past. Um, and the way in which people are going to deal with this information is they're going to have talks about it and conversations and um, try and come up with uh, uh, um, uh, solutions, intellectual coping mechanisms, explanations for things. My sense actually is that we're better off if the church is not in the primary business of doing that, and that the church is in the primary business of sort of preaching what they see as being the core uh, truths of the gospel. Um, because it turns out, I think, um, that a lot of the things that, uh, ways we come up with thinking about things, they oftentimes turn out to be wrong or mistaken um, or in need of refinement. Um, and we do a lot better if that is happening in a um, in a forum, right, in which the theological stakes are not as high as they are when the church itself is doing. Um, I think this, for example, was one of the problems with the Leonard Arrington model of the church history department. You don't really want the best and the brightest of Mormon historians working for the church. Um, it creates um, all sorts of institutional stresses. Um, about how authoritative or official is what they're doing. Um, uh, and I think we're better off if that is occurring in a sort of vibrant, informal sector. In terms of Mormon studies, my sense is that actually uh, the future of Mormon studies um, lies less in um, finding uh, once and for all um, answers to these sort of, these sort of um, difficult pastoral or apologetic questions. My sense is that the contours of the debates and the sorts of arguments that we can have about those, those things are fairly well fleshed out. And I think that actually um, the, the future of Mormon studies lies less in um, focus on these internal questions of Mormonism and of Mormon theology, and a lot more on trying to situate Mormon experience and Mormon thought in a broader world. And I thought this was really powerfully shown in Bushman's biography. One of the reasons Bushman is a really good historian of Mormonism is not simply that he knows Mormon history really well. It's that he knows something else. He knows American history very well, and he's able to situate 
uh, Mormon history in that larger story. And I think that increasingly is what uh, scholars interested in Mormonism are going to need to do, that the, the model of um, finding the exciting new fact that you weren't told in Sunday school, uh, that model of doing Mormon studies, I think, has run its course. And what we need now is people who can show connections uh, and broader interpretations and can situate uh, the study of Mormonism within other disciplines, uh, within law or anthropology uh, or history. Um, and that actually, uh, in the best of all possible worlds, there would be less of Mormon studies and more of lots of other disciplines studying Mormonism. Right. So U.S. history uh, focused on the Mormon perspective or, or the Mormon experience as an example. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I can't speak, uh, uh, certainly I can't speak authoritatively about any other disciplines. I mean, what I, would, what I am interested in is law. That's what I do. Uh, and what I would love to see would be uh, more work on Mormon legal history. Um, not just in terms of um, trying to situate it within the context of American legal history or uh, world legal history, but also trying to come up with interpretations about what it means. Um, what would it mean, for example, to say that there is Mormon legal thought? And what's interesting is that this is an issue that a lot of other people are struggling with. There is a movement uh, within uh, the legal academy by uh, a number of professors to try and come up with various kinds of religious legal thought. What does Christian legal thought work look like? Uh, there's an article forthcoming uh, on that by a professor from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. Um, there has been excellent, excellent work that's been done on Jewish legal thought and experience. And I think that um, I would like to see Mormons looking to those as models for how they can study and think about Mormon legal experience. Hmm. Very good. Well, to, to wrap things up, and I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on, on Mormon Stories, uh, I have a special place in my heart for those who have have studied and become shocked or or bewildered by the, the stuff they didn't know about or the stuff that's been uncovered in terms of history or culture or whatever, um, and and really struggle with that uh, because I've, I've been through my own phase of that in my own life. And and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is because you, you represent someone like Richard Bushman who who knows quite, quite a lot. You, there, there probably aren't many aspects of Joseph Smith, controversial Joseph Smith or Book of Mormon or whatever uh, stuff that the apologetics would get into. There probably aren't many facts or issues that you at least haven't become aware of and had to, you know, process in your own life. And so yeah, I'm sure there's lots and lots of stuff that I don't know. Well, that that said, I think that for the main things that usually cause people to to struggle with in, in their faith, you've probably at least become familiar with those. And so I wanted to part of why I wanted to bring you on was just to give you a chance um to speak as someone who's a person of faith, who's been through these struggles, to to offer maybe an alternative perspective. And, and here's what I mean. There's a lot of people who sort of believe in an absolute literalist way, and then they find out all the stuff that they didn't know, and they feel like their only option is to either maintain a literalist belief or to throw it all away and abandon it. So, you know... I. I'd like to just ask you just a final closing of a few final questions. You don't have to deal with them in any depth, but you know, let's say that someone's struggling, for example, with um, you know Joseph Smith and the the tougher things, 
you know, maybe it's the ma- the magic stuff, maybe it's the polygamy thing or the polyandry thing or whatever. You know, can you share with us your a perspective of Joseph Smith that that considers him to be a prophet, but still um, is is fully aware of the hard things? And I, I know I, I'm not asking you to do something groundbreakingly profound. Something simple and faithful is fine. I don't mean to put you on the spot like you're going to turn some magic key to save all these people. But I do think it would be faith-affirming for many maybe to just hear your perspective on maybe that type of thing and maybe a couple others. Um, just generally. I mean, on, on, on Joseph Smith, I think uh, the important thing uh, to, uh, for me, at least in understanding, is that uh, you can't, I think, subscribe to a notion in which um, everything that Joseph Smith says or does um, is directly dictated by God. And I think the point, and this is true generally, I think, about revelation and inspiration, the, the important claim is not that everything is revealed or inspired, uh, but that enough of it is revealed and inspired to accomplish God's purposes in the world. Um, and I don't expect uh, or demand anything more than that uh, when I'm studying or looking at the past. The other thing, right, is... I don't expect the past to be like the present. Uh, it's a foreign country where people do things differently. Um, and uh, I should expect to find things that are strange and are odd there. Um, I, I could go into to greater detail um, on particular issues, but I'm not sure um, that's really what you're asking me to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess the, the other thing that I would say um, is that um, we live in uh, a fallen, messy world. And that means that um, our beliefs about the world, how we understand the world, are going to be fallen and messy. Um, and that doesn't preclude us having uh, firm convictions and certainty about certain things, but it does mean that there are a lot of things that we don't know and we don't understand uh, and where we just have to operate on hope and faith. And that's just fine. Uh, in my book. Um, as for uh, seer stones, for example, I really want my own seer stone. <laughs> um, that strikes me as something really cool. Um, and there's a lot of things where uh, that's my approach to them. The sort of strange strangeness of it I find very fascinating and interesting. Kind of a wonder, um, a wonderment. A wonderment to me. Now, there are other things, right, where I think they're much, they're much more difficult, and I, I don't uh, have quite the same emotional reaction, say, to something like polyndry. Um, uh, but even there, I think that uh, things are always more complicated than they appear. And if it turns out that a sort of cartoonish picture of uh, Joseph Smith um, as a wholly uh, inspired divine automat- automaton is false, it's equally false that the uh, cartoonish picture that you get of uh, Joseph Smith as sex-crazed fraud is equally false, if not more so. Um, And that what you're going to find is uh, theological understandings that are different than the ones you have now, but are familiar, um, and and that your beliefs in some sense are continuations and modifications of those unfamiliar uh, beliefs. And you're going to find practices that are very, very different than they are now. Um, uh, and are and can be shocking, but um, are not the sort of cartoonish things that you might suppose that they are. Right. Um, 
and I think kind of that point, if you want me to explain it more, you got to get into no, uh, no, that, a that, lot of nitty gritty details. That's that's beautiful. What about those who? What about those who have just studied, you know, DNA or archaeological stuff, or and, and just say I can't get myself to view the Book of Mormon as historical? Do you have a a perspective or an approach that one might take if they still want to maintain belief or affiliation that that finds some middle ground or some alternative view that can reclaim uh, some divinity in the Book of Mormon? Uh, Well, you can always sort of opt into some version of sort of divine fiction. Um, I don't find that especially satisfying. Uh, I think Blake Osler's idea of the Book of Mormon as a sort of inspired expansion on uh, on a ancient text uh, is a very powerful one. Uh, methodologically, uh, I think there's a certain circularity in the Blake's argument. Um, uh, so I'm not sure that it's necessarily um, uh, incredibly uh, valuable in the sense that it's not easily falsified. Um, I think there are those sorts of things that you can respond you can respond to. I think though um, the the way I tend to respond uh, to a lot of things where I have questions is I come up with various sorts of strategies or ways that I might answer the question, and my answers might be right or they might be wrong. Uh, I don't necessarily know if I'm right or wrong about lots of different things. Uh, and then what I fall back on is hope and faith. I hope that I'm right um, about things. And it seems to me that hope and faith is an integral part of uh, the Christian life. Um, and it's not a substitute for sure conviction. It's not a second-rate thing that you fall back on when you're uncertain, uh, because what you really want is certainty. And it's not something even uh, that you have, uh, or that certainty uh, uh can't coexist with. I think you can be fairly certain about certain things, but ultimately you always um, are going to be required to walk by faith and hope. And that's part, I think, of how you deal with and understand things. Do you hope that it is true? Um, And walking by that hope is part of what it means to be a disciple and a believer. Welcome to the world. So what what about someone, and this will be, maybe this will be the final question I ask, what about someone who would say, I have a hard time hoping that Mormonism's true because to hope that Mormonism's true means that all those other religions are false and that God somehow it mathematically ends up being put in the position of playing favorites with less than one half than one percent of his population. You know, why you know, why are so few people privy to this? There just doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem just. Plus there's so much more beauty in other faiths, there's so much truth and goodness once you've traveled around a bit. You know, it, what about someone who would say, yeah, I mean, from my from my formative years and from my past experience, I want it to be true uh, so that it's not all false and a big fraud and then my life falls apart. But at the same time, I got to think that God's got a bigger plan and that we don't understand it all and that um, there's been enough confusion and changing of things and trouble in terms of past decisions and, and policies and doctrines or whatever that God's got to God's got to have it a little bit more figured out than what what the history you know within the Mormon faith has shown you know in the numbers just the, the sheer numbers of of how few people get to be Mormons in their mortal existence anything you could offer there 
I, I guess the question is you is to think very carefully about what it means when you say that Mormonism is true. I don't subscribe to a belief that says the fact that I believe that the Mormon Church is true, or that I believe that the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith is true. I don't think that that implies that I believe that God is not at work elsewhere in the world. Um, it does not imply a belief that um, other religions are full of good and true and divinely inspired things. What it does mean, right, is that I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has uh, a unique place in God's plan, that it has certain tasks and jobs that have been given to it um, that God uh, has not entrusted to anybody else, and that my role in God's work um, is to fulfill my part of that part of his plan. Um, and that's enough for me. Um, and I don't think that that requires um, that I uh, deny the good, the true, the beautiful, and the divine um, elsewhere um, in the world and, and other religions. It just is to recognize uh, the, the calling that God has given to me, the place that he has given to me in his plan. And uh, for me, that place is to live my life as a good and faithful Latter-day Saint to the extent of my abilities. Well, Nate, I just, I just can't thank you enough. I know that you're a busy law professor. You've got a lot of projects going on. We've been trying to meet for some time. I just want to thank you for the trust you've given uh, to come on Mormon Stories. I, I know that there are many in my, my listenership uh, who are going to be really grateful to hear a faithful and a thoughtful perspective on on an approach to, to Mormonism and membership in the LDS Church. So on behalf of my listeners, may I thank you um, for coming on Mormon Stories. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today. Thanks again for listening.